This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A woman is walking home from a nice night out with friends when she hears footsteps behind her. Seconds later, a man catches up with her and pushes her to the ground. She is brutally attacked and raped. The man beats her and chokes her. But finally, she is able to get away. This is the first of several attacks against women by a man that kept the city of Umeå in fear for almost a decade. A serial rapist who got the name the Haga Man because of the area he attacked in. You are now going to hear the whole story of all the attacks and the events that finally led the police to arrest him. Welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Before we get into today's story, I want to mention that we got a lot of the information for the story of the Haga man from two really well-written books. Unfortunately, they are not available in English today. But I know I have a lot of Swedish listeners too, who might uh, want to read them. The first one is called... Hagamannen så våldtogs en stad and it's written by Therese Kristiansson and the other one is called Polisens jakt på Hagamannen en sann historia written by Anders Boström and Camilla Andersson I can really recommend both books and the names I use for the victims in this story is also fictional to protect their privacy. I'm using the same names used in the book to make it less confusing. And then I got an email yesterday from Kit wondering if I could run a promo for her new podcast. Some of you might know her from the Forgotten News podcast that I also recommend. But this is something completely new that Kit is doing. I listened to the promo that she sent me And I can't wait to try it out tonight. You'll understand what I mean after you listen to this. Here's Kit. Hello everyone. This is Kit Karen. You might know me as the co-host of the Forgotten News Podcast. And yes, I am whispering. But I am not whispering because I am hiding from someone. We're on the run. (laughs) The reason why I am whispering is because I want to tell you a secret. Only a few people know so far. And this is the secret. I am the host of a new podcast which will tell stories of true crime, weird disappearances, strange mysteries, Wild adventures, spooky things, funny things, and also stories that listeners ask me to tell. But these stories will be spoken entirely in whisper, and every story will be 100% true. In fact, the podcast is called Whispered True. 
Doesn't that sound like an interesting format for a podcast? I'm definitely going to listen to Whispered True Stories tonight. Well, enough of the business, and let's get into the story. This is part two in a two-part story. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to that one first. And if sexual violence is a trigger for you, You might want to skip this episode. There will be some awful details and foul language in this part of the story too. A short recap of what happened in episode 1. The city of Umeå in northern Sweden is in fear because there is a man attacking and raping women in a part of Umeå called Haga. That is why the man got the moniker the Haga man. In part one, I told you about the very first attack on 28-year-old Pia in May of 1999. After that attack, about six months pass until he strikes again. It's on November 6, 1999, that he first attacks 50-year-old Karin. And later that same night, he also attacks 23-year-old Erika and then 18-year-old Kia. And after the attack on Kia, four more months passed, and then on March 19th, 2000, he attacked first 22-year-old Sara, and then later that same night, he attacked, raped, and almost killed 22-year-old Mia when he left her unconscious in freezing temperature. It was after Mia's attack we left off in episode 1, so let's continue the story and see what happened after the last two attacks in March of 2000. When the news of the two attacks hit the public, the Haga man became even more famous, or infamous I should say. The serial rapist had now tried to kill his victim, and this was on everyone's mind the upcoming months. The police secured DNA from the crime scene and they knew that the man had been wearing Mia's shoes. So the description of the Haga man became even more distinct. Not only was he short, he wore women-sized cowboy boots. The police visited every shoe store in Umeå and asked if they had sold shoes for a man with small feet and they finally decided to release the sketch to the public. When 16-year-old Louise opened the paper that morning and saw the face of the Haga man staring at her, she immediately knew he was the man who attacked her two years ago. It was on August 2nd, 1998. Louise was only 14 years old at the time and had been downtown Umeå with a friend that night. At about one in the morning, they decided to walk home to Haga. When the friend was turning to go to her own house, they said goodbye and Louise continued walking alone towards her home. She felt uneasy when she heard footsteps behind her. She looked back and saw a short man with a determined look on his face. She made a left turn to get out of his sight, but he followed her and she was about to look back again when she felt a hard push on her back. Louise fell down on her knees and it hurt. She got scared and quickly got up and tried to run away, but
but he came after her, grabbing her and holding her in a tight grip. He pushed her down on the ground again, and as she was lying on the ground, he kicked her hard in the back. The man was filled with rage, and all his rage was pointed at her. She could see pure hate in his eyes. Somehow, Louise finds herself on the stomach with her back facing the attacker. He sits down on her back and takes out a belt that he ties around her neck. She is screaming for help, but he kept tightening the belt more and more. Louise later describes the situation. It was like he was playing with me, like a cat with a mouse. When I thought it couldn't get any worse, he would loosen the grip and pretend as if I had a chance to escape. Louise passed out at one time, but she registered him yelling, Helvete! really loud. Translated, Helvete means hell. The man had spotted a man on a bike coming straight towards them. The attacker gets up, pulls Louise off the ground and threw her in the nearby creek. Then he grabbed her purse and quickly ran away. Louise was dizzy and in a near unconscious state when she hit the water. She was sinking really fast but managed to wake up enough to realize the danger she was in. The man on the bike who saw everything from a distance ran up to her and he helped her out of the water. When Louise got home to her parents, they immediately called the police. The police wanted to talk to Louise herself, so she got on the phone. But she never felt like the police took her seriously. This was before the first known attack by the Haga man, and they didn't believe her story. They kept asking her if she had been drinking, and they never took a face-to-face -face statement from her. In the following years, when the assaults of the Haga man became known to the public, Louise immediately connected her attacker to the serial rapist. It was the exact same M.O., and it happened in the district of Haga. But it wasn't until the sketch was released that she became certain. This was definitely the same guy. She got in touch with the police again, and they reopened the case in March 2000, right after the assault on the university campus. Since there was no crime scene investigation done, and her injuries were not documented by the authorities, only the witness statement of Louise was not enough to press charges against the Hagerman when he was finally caught. And he did not confess to the assault when questioned in court. But the fact that Louise now know who attacked her makes it a little bit easier for her. Personally, I think the reason that he didn't confess to the assault on Louise is because she was only 14. And if he got convicted for that, it meant he would have had a conviction of sexual violence against a child on his plate. Nine months later, it was time for another Hagaman assault. This time it happened to Elin, a 15-year-old girl living in the district of Ersboda in Umeå. It was December of 2000, and Elin had been at a friend's house watching the popular TV show Aim for the Stars. It's almost 11 p.m. and she's walking fast because of the cold weather. She walks along the main street of Ersboda and notices a man with a pink shirt with folded sleeves. And he wasn't wearing a coat. Elin thinks to herself, that's gotta be cold. She is wearing a winter coat and two pair of pants to stay warm. They pass each other and she takes a quick look at him. Only seconds later, she can hear him coming at her from behind. She is startled, and he puts his hands around her neck. Elin tries to scream for help, but he immediately puts his hand over her mouth. 
He slaps her in the face and pulls her down on the ground. Elin tries to resist, but she's only a tiny 15-year-old girl, and he is strong even though he is short. The attacker throws her on her stomach, pushing her down with his arms. Elin is terrified, and she can't make a sound with her face pressed to the cold, snowy road. The man is standing up, leaning over her, and holds her arms behind her back. He says with an angry voice, You better take it fucking easy now, or else this is going to hurt really bad. He starts pulling down her pants, both of them. She is wearing a pair of tight black yoga pants and a pair of baggy jeans to stay warm. The jeans came off fairly easily, but the yoga pants are too tight for him to drag down. He keeps tugging at them but stops after a couple of failed attempts. Instead, he pulls her from the ground and makes her kneel before him. Then he forces her to perform sexual acts on him. It goes on for a while, then suddenly he pulls her up on her feet and says that she should leave. She tries to run off but her jeans are down by her ankles and she stumbles to get away. In an effort to escape she quickly takes off her shoes to get her pants off and she runs away from her rapist wearing only socks. Elin runs home as fast as she can and she tells her parents what just happened. Her dad calls the police and they immediately come to the house for a statement. They label it attempted rape and send a police dog to scan the crime scene for evidence and traces of the man. Elin told the police she had lost her bag with her wallet and her cell phone and that she left her shoes and jeans on the ground. The officers find her items scattered around the area and they take them back to the station. Kenzo, the police dog, picks up a scent of the attacker and follows him across Ersboda, but loses track of him just a block from a nearby restaurant. At the same time, it's midnight at the restaurant Companiet, and the atmosphere is festive. The company Motorcentralen, a local car repair company, are having a beer tasting for their employees, and almost everyone has had too much to drink at this time of night. No one noticed that one of the partygoers left the restaurant and was gone for a while, just shortly before midnight. And when the short man with the small feet joins the festivities again, he was acting completely normal. The police investigation focuses on knocks and talks in the area. They weren't sure that this was a Haga man assault. After all, it happened in Ersboda, another part of Umeå that is located about a mile away from Haga. Also, this attack wasn't as violent as the previous ones. They couldn't find any DNA at the scene so there was nothing to connect the case with the Haga man. An ambitious investigator called the restaurant Companiet and found out that the company Motorcentralen had a beer tasting there that night. Since this was thought to be just a random attack unrelated to the Haga man, the police didn't follow up. If they had investigated further and connected this assault to the previous attacks, they would probably have found the Hagerman among the Motor Centralen employees. The sketch was very accurate, and his height and foot size would have given him away. And this was the second time the Hagerman was almost caught by the police.
tips kept coming into the police regarding who the serial rapist could be, and the police followed up in the fastest possible way. But there was no major breakthrough in the case for a couple of years following the attack on Elin. In March of 2002, about one and a half year after the last attack, an anonymous handwritten letter reached the investigators working on the Hagaman case. It stated that there was a man who used to live near the crime scenes in Haga, and he looks very much like the sketch. And he is short and his feet are small. At first, this seemed just like any other tip that came in, but the police called this man for questioning. The man confirmed that he used to live in Haga and that he knows his way around the university because of his work. But he had an alibi for March 19th, 2000, when the Haga man almost killed Mia after first attacking Sara outside her apartment complex. He was out of town and his friends and family corroborated this story. He was also asked what size shoes he wears and he said 41, which is bigger than the assumed size 38 of the Haga man. To translate the shoe sizes, a Swedish 41 is about a men's 8 and a Swedish 38 is about a men's 6. The man was also asked if he owned a pair of brown cowboy boots, or if he knew anyone who did. But he said no to both those questions, and the investigators had no choice but to let him go without an arrest. Before he left, they asked him if he would take a voluntary DNA test, and he said, sure, I'll do that. The police sent the DNA to the lab and asked for a speedy result. The people of Umeå were deeply affected by the assaults of the Haga man, and the investigators did all they could to find this man as quickly as possible. Because of the pressure to solve this case, the police did not ask for a complete test of the man's DNA. They only looked for specific indicators to be able to rule people out. And when the test of the questioned man came back negative, they went on to look for other clues to who the Hageman could be. If they would have asked for a complete test, they would have found out that the DNA of the man they had just had in for questioning was a close relative to the Hageman. The man they just had questioned was the brother of the Hageman. And this was the third time the police almost caught the Haga man. After the assault on 15-year-old Elin in December 2000, the serial rapist took a five-year-long break. The first couple of years, people were still very afraid and expected his next assault at any time. But as the years went by, People started to think that he had either gone to prison for something else, or that he died. Or maybe he was a college student who had moved back to his hometown and got his life back on track. Five years after the last attack, the police chief of Umeå decided that they were going to review the whole case again. They had the DNA. They also had the sketch and a very distinct profile of this man. He must be able to catch, the police figured. So they put new detectives on the case, and they went through all of the evidence, witness statements, and criminal profile in search for the final truth about the Haga man. But they didn't finish the review before the Haga man struck again this time on the south side of Umeå River, in the district called Teg. It was December 10, 2005, when the 51-year-old Kristina is lying on her back, looking up at the stars in the sky. It's dead silent, and she's thinking to herself, 
Is this what heaven is like? She is cold. It's minus 9 Celsius, or 16 degrees Fahrenheit. And her underwear and pantyhose are pulled down to her ankles. She is lying on the frozen ground, left to die by a madman. I've got to get home, she says to herself, and starts crawling up the hill that she was thrown down before. It's cold, and she can hear the sound of the Umu River below her as she is desperately trying to save herself. She is terrified that the man may come back, and she is constantly looking over her shoulder in fear. At the same time, she is afraid of what she will encounter when she reaches the top of the hill. Is the man waiting for her up there? But there is no alternative if she wants to live. She must get home, home to where she is safe. Halfway up the slope, she finds her purse, one of her gloves and a hairbrush. She picks them up, trembling with fear and cold, and continues up. Christina tries to scream for help, but her throat hurts from being choked. There is blood running from the side of her head as she's walking home in the dark, cold, and empty streets of Teg. When she finally reaches her doorstep, her hands are so cold she can barely get the keys out of her purse. At last, she manages to open the door and immediately calls 112 when she enters the warm apartment. She takes a look at herself in the hallway mirror and almost faints as she realizes that where her left ear used to be, there is only flesh and blood. The man bit her ear off. Only minutes later, two police officers knock on her door. Christina is in shock and she is dizzy. Her brown sweater and her brown skirt with blue flowers are wrinkled and covered with snowy ice from laying down before. She is not wearing her winter coat and she only has one of her gloves. She is pacing back and forth and she is trying to tell the officers what happened to her. Initially, all she can utter is, He bit my ear off. He actually bit my ear off. But slowly, the whole picture is becoming more and more clear. Christina gives a very detailed description of what her rapist looked like, and she describes where the rape took place. Blood keeps running from her torn-off ear down on her neck. The police send a car to the crime scene, where they immediately start looking for traces of the perpetrator and other evidence. A description of the man goes out to all patrol cars. He is a Swedish-looking man, approximately 170 centimeters tall and about 20 to 30 years of age. He is wearing a dark coat, possibly with a hoodie underneath. They instantly knew it was the Haga man that had struck again. Christina is taken to the hospital accompanied by an officer in an ambulance, and she is able to tell a more detailed statement about the night. She tells the police how she had been out to dinner with a female friend earlier that Friday night. After dinner, they walked over to a close-by bar and had a couple of drinks. And at around 1am, she decides it was time to head home. Just like most people who live in the near parts of Umeå, she decided to walk home. It was only about a 20-minute walk across the bridge over the Umeå River to her house, and though it was cold, she had on a warm coat and gloves. And remember, it's now been about five years since the last attack, and the women of Umeå was feeling somewhat safe again. She reaches the northern end of the bridge and starts walking on the left-hand side, When she's about halfway across, she sees a dark shape of a person in the middle of the road ahead. She cannot tell if it's a man or a woman, but she is worried that this someone 
will be hit by a car. The road is usually very busy, but at this time of night the streets are empty. Christina keeps walking and looks at the wobbling, seemingly drunk person going back and forth along the road ahead. When she reaches the southern end of the bridge on the Teg side, Christina is about to make a turn and has her mind set on going home to a warm house. Suddenly she notices that the person has stopped walking and is now looking straight at her. He picks up the pace again but this time he is focusing on reaching Christina as fast as he can. It's a man, Christina thinks to herself, and just as she feels a rush of adrenaline pumping through her body, he throws himself at her. Christina yells at him, What the hell do you think you're doing? His eyes are wild and beastly, and he hisses at her, I'm going to fuck you. Christina quickly realizes that this is for real. This man actually wants to hurt her. The short man is coming for her and the fight is on. The man is tugging at her, trying to get her off the bridge, away from any possible witnesses. Christina is trying to get away from him and struggles to stay on the road. He repeats, I am going to fuck you. And she screams out for help. She is hoping someone in the nearby apartment buildings will hear her. Or a car might come down the road. If she can only stay on the road, she might have a chance to live. A truck drive by. The driver is later questioned by the police as a witness. And he told the police that he saw the man standing on top of the woman that night but he thought he was helping her up, as if she had fallen to the ground. Maybe it's a lover's quarrel, he thinks to himself as he drives by. He honked the horn to get their attention, and the man looks at him with a scared look on his face. The woman raises her right arm, and the driver thought she was waving at him, as if to say that everything was fine. So he keeps going, and he didn't give it another thought until he read about the assault in the newspaper the next day, and then he reported what he had seen to the police. The rapist keeps pulling Christina down the slope to a more secluded place. It's chaos, and Christina won't give up. She is giving it everything she's got, and the man grows increasingly frustrated. Suddenly he grabs her by the face and pulls her towards him. She can feel his teeth in her left ear, and it crackles as he tears it off. He yells, shut the fuck up. The pain is excruciating, and she can feel blood running down her neck, and a pool of blood is taking shape on the snowy white ground. The fight continues. Christina is not giving up. At one time she manages to get one of his finger in her mouth and she bites it really hard. This doesn't seem to stop him though. Instead, it's like the pain sparked even more determination in him. He manages to pull her down and drags her down the slope, under the bridge. Christina gets up on her feet a couple of times, but it's in vain. He is stronger than her, and she is in deep pain. She tries a new strategy. Instead of fighting him, she tries to connect with him. She tells him what her name is, that she has a husband and children, and that she wants to go home. She begs him to let her go, tells him, please don't kill me, multiple times. But her weakness only makes him angrier, and he grabs her by the throat. He is choking her, and Christina can't breathe. She is about to lose consciousness, but then he softens his grip, and she gasps for air. He pulls her watch off, and as she's lying face down on the ground, 
He starts pulling her pantyhose and underwear down. Christina is paralyzed with fear now. She is certain this man will kill her. And her strength is about to run out. Then he rapes her. When he is finished, the violence continues. This time he punches her in the face and drags her down to the river bank. The Umeå river is covered in a thin layer of ice. And if she goes into the water, it's all over, Christina thinks to herself. The man is afraid to go too far out on the ice. So he grabs her by the throat again and squeezes real hard. Then Christina passed out. When she comes to, only minutes later, she is looking up at the stars in the sky and nothing will ever be the same again. The police officers that were called out to the crime scene when Christina was in the hospital found her ear on the ground, not far from the road. It was lying in a pool of blood on the shoulder of the south end part of the bridge. They picked it up and wrapped it in snow before they headed over to the hospital. Christina is taken to an OR and they manage to sew the ear back again that same night. And as all this is taking place, a man is being picked up by his wife not far from the crime scene. He had been out partying with friends from his workplace, Motorcentralen, and his wife picked him up after he had called her. She noticed that his clothes were covered in blood and asked him what had happened. The man told her he had a nosebleed and she left it at that. When they got home, he immediately put all of his clothes in the wash machine. For the first time in their marriage, he did laundry, his wife thought to herself. Before he went to bed that night, he made a hamburger for himself and ate it silently at the kitchen table of his newly renovated home in the outskirts of Umeå. His two children were sound asleep and the woman he had been living with since high school lay awake thinking what a weird night it was. The day after that, on Saturday, December 11th, 2005, the investigators working on the Hageman investigation were both surprised to hear of another assault by the Hageman and also filled with determination. We are going to catch him. They pulled phone records from all the phones that connected to the nearest cell tower that night. But it came back negative since the man had escaped the area quicker than they thought. So once again, he managed to just escape the police. The phone call to the Hageman's wife had connected to a tower just outside their search range. And this was the fourth time the Hageman was almost caught by the police. Just like after all the other assaults by the Hageman, as soon as the news hit the media, people started contacting the police about possible suspects. They got so many tips that they had to call in more resources from the National Police Force, specialized in violent crimes. One of the investigators that were called in to work on the case was Jonas Hildeby. He is a geographical profiler, newly educated by the FBI, to work across the nation in support of local police authorities. Geographic profiling is a criminal investigative methodology that analyzes the locations of a connected series of crimes to determine the most probable area 
of offender residence by incorporating both qualitative and quantitative methods it assists in understanding spatial behavior of an offender and focusing on the investigation to a smaller area of the community typically used in a case of serial murder or rape the technique helps police detectives prioritize information in large-scale major crime investigations that often involve hundreds or thousands of suspects and tips. Geographical profiling was a fairly new method in Sweden in 2005. The profile that Jonas Hildeby presented to the Umeå police was accurate. It stated that he works or has a close friend in the district of Haga. When the Haga man was finally arrested, it was revealed that his brother lived in Haga and he used to stay there when he had been out partying with friends. And his place of work, Motorcentralen, was also located in Haga. In the weeks following the assault of Christina, about 30 people were working on going through and prioritizing the tips that came in. On January 29th, 2006, someone unidentified finally reports the true identity of the Hagerman to the police. A man called Niklas Lindgren. It's not known who this someone who reported him was. But some people think it was his wife who put two and two together. Others think it was one of his co-workers at Motorcentralen. We will never know. Because of the heavy workload of the police, it took almost two months before they took Niklas Lindgren in for questioning. Remember, this was only one of thousands of tips on who the Haga man might be. But on March 20th, 2006, he was asked to come to the police station because someone tipped the police that he looked a lot like the sketch. He was asked to come in for a short questioning. He arrived in his work clothes and was asked the usual questions about the cowboy boots and his whereabouts on the night when Christina was raped. He first tells the police that he doesn't remember what he did on the night between December 9th and December 10th. He says that he thinks that his kid had a birthday party that weekend, but he can't really remember what he did. Before the questioning is over, the police kindly ask him to leave a voluntary DNA sample, as they did with everyone they questioned. Niklas says that he has heard a lot about voluntary DNA tests, and that he doesn't really want to leave his DNA. This, of course, rose some suspicion with the police. And the very next day, they bring in some of his workmates for questioning. They tell the police about the event that they had that night, and that several of them continued into the central parts of Umeå and continued drinking. Among those who went into Umeå was Niklas Lindgren. The day after the questioning of his workmates, Niklas Lindgren is brought into the police station for a second questioning. He is confronted with the fact that he went into Umeå with his friends to go to a local pub. He then remembers that that was actually the case. He says that after leaving the pub at about 2 a.m. he went and got some food at a night open place. Then he called his wife and she came and picked him up. He is again asked if he's willing to leave a voluntary DNA sample. He says that he doesn't want to leave his DNA and says it's still because of what he has heard about DNA tests. The police then ask him if he would mind if they took a picture of him. He replies that he cannot see any good reason that he should allow it. He is then asked directly, Did you have anything to do with the assault 
close to the TX bridge? His answer is no. That same night, the police calls his common-law wife and asks her to come to the police station. When she comes back home that night, she asks Niklas why he didn't agree on leaving a DNA sample. She says it's the easiest way to be ruled out of the investigation. They talk about it a bit and agree on that everything will work out if he only leaves that DNA sample. The next morning the police contact him again and ask him to come to the police station. When he arrives he is informed that they now have orders to take his DNA even though he doesn't want to. He says okay, let's do it. But when the Q-tip is placed in his mouth there is no saliva there at all. His mouth is so dry that they have to give him a glass of water before they're able to take the test. The day after the test, Niklas Lindgren called in sick to work. He probably knew what was coming. Only five days after he left his DNA, the detective in charge of the case got a call from the lab. They confirmed that Niklas Lindgren, in fact, is the Haga man. Shortly after that call, the police send officers to both his home and to his workplace at the same time. But they find him at his workplace, Motorcentralen, in Haga. He is on his way back from lunch break along with some colleagues. They discreetly take him away and bring him down to the police station. About two hours after the arrest, the police holds a press conference. They tell the gathered press that a man is under arrest for the rapes in Haga and that he is tied to the crimes by DNA. It's a 33-year-old husband and father of two who seemingly lived a quiet life with his wife. Two days later, Niklas Lindgren is sentenced to pre-trial detention by the court of Umeå on multiple counts of rape assault, and attempted murder. Niklas denies all charges against him. He keeps denying that he has anything to do with the rapes for about three weeks. But on April 22nd, he says that he has something to say to the detectives. And with his lawyer present, he says, Well, yes. I would like to plead guilty to six assaults. One hour later, the hearing was over. Niklas Lindgren was charged with assault of nine different women, but he only confessed to six of them. He committed five of these assaults between the birth of his first and second child. Sweden is in shock. How can Niklas Lindgren possibly be the Haga man? People had expected him to be a beastly monster, and in front of them stood a short, nerdy Niklas. It turned out that his friends had teased him about his small feet and the fact that he looked so much like the sketch. But no one of his friends actually thought that he could be the rapist, so no one called the police. When asked what he was doing those five years between assaults, he said he was busy renovating the house and that he didn't go out much with his co-workers during that period. In October 2006, Niklas Lindgren was sentenced to 14 years in prison on two counts of attempted murder, two counts of aggravated rape, rape and attempted rape. His victims were awarded damages of 430,000 Swedish kronor, 
almost 50,000 US dollars. According to the psychological evaluation made after his sentence, Niklas Lindgren is a sexual sadist with an unspecified personality disorder with obsessive and immature traits. But why does a person rape? Psychotherapist Nicolas Groth explains that rape isn't primary a sexual action. It's more about control and gaining power over someone. He has done clinical studies and deep interviews with several convicted sexual offenders, and he is categorizing them into three different types. The first type is anger rapist. It's an unplanned event. The perpetrator is often brutal and upset and uses more violence than needed to be able to rape the victim. Even when talking to the victim, he can express himself violently and he can also be rude and condescending. This type of rapist has a lot of times difficulty with getting an erection and that makes him even more aggressive. Because of his erection problems, he is not always able to complete the rape, but instead forces the victim to satisfy him orally. After the rape, he can feel relieved, mixed with a feeling of disgust. He has now been able to release the anger he has been carrying inside for a long time. A lot of times, some major event is a trigger that makes him go out and rape. When researching this, I really think that Niklas Lindgren fits into that group of anger rapists. He has been very violent. He hasn't always been able to go through with the rape due to loss of erection. And when the two assaults in March 2000 happened, Niklas' wife just gave birth to their second child, who was born premature, and she and the son were still in the hospital. But let's quickly look at the other two types of rapists. The second type is the power rapist. This is said to be the most common type of rapist. The power rapist usually plans the rape in advance. He might bring some kind of weapon to use to scare the victim. The reason he rapes is mostly because he has the need to dominate and have power over another person. He can see the act as a proof of his own worth as a man and a human being. He can also perceive that the passivity of a victim means that she actually wanted to have sex with him. When I read this description, my mind goes to the Golden State Killer. And finally, the third type is Sadistic Rapist. This rapist has a strong connection between anger and sexuality, and he really enjoys when the victims are suffering. This type of rapist isn't able to feel sexual pleasure without hurting the victim. He also often uses tools and ritual elements during the rape. He can keep a victim captive for days, and his act can end up with the victim being murdered. I thought it would be interesting to include this and to learn some more about the different types of rapists. I hope you think so too. Psychotherapist Nicolas Groth has been studying this for a long, long time. And when writing down his profession, I realized that the word psychotherapist becomes something completely different if you split it up. It becomes psycho the rapist. Back to Niklas and his sentencing. He was sent off to prison with a target on his head. Everyone knew about the Haga man that had terrorized the whole city for so long. Needless to say, Niklas Lindgren was not a popular guy. A year after he came to the prison of Kumla, he had to be moved to the Nortelje prison instead after an incident. 
Remember the beating that I told you about in episode 19? Niklas Lindgren was beaten by Kenny, who murdered his 12-year-old stepdaughter and raped her 13-year-old friend. Another time, a group of interns had gone into Niklas' cell when he wasn't there, and they had peed in his bed. He was also assaulted multiple times at the Kumla prison. The Swedish justice system believes in rehabilitation, and the law is crystal clear. When you have served two-thirds of your time, you are released on probation for the last third of your sentenced time. On July 28, 2015, Niklas Lindgren was released from prison after being locked up for nine years. Before his release, there was a media frenzy regarding the probation laws, and many people questioned whether he should even be allowed to visit Umeå. At the day of his release, hundreds of people in Umeå protested against the release of the Haga man by demonstrating their disgust on the main square of Umeå. Niklas Lindgren didn't move back to Umeå. Instead, he was accepted into a community college in Luleå, about a three-hour drive north of Umeå. Only a month after he moved in, he was brutally assaulted by three men, aged 21, 23, and 24. There were several witnesses to this assault, but everyone happened to suffer from memory loss when it was time for the trial hearings, and no one could be convicted of this crime. So, who was Niklas Lindgren? He hasn't been able to explain what made him assault all of those women for so many years. Instead, people are looking for answers in his previous life. Sadly, there is not much there to explain how someone with a seemingly normal upbringing can be so filled with rage and anger that he becomes a serial rapist. The only thing that can remotely explain his actions is alcohol. He claims that he committed all of his crimes under the influence of a lot of alcohol. He claims to never have done any drugs in his life. He started drinking when he was about 14 or 15 years old and have been a party drinker since then. The fact that he's a free man today scares me and makes me question the Swedish justice system. He didn't get any therapy in prison. He was offered to attend a class for sexual perpetrators, but he refused. In my mind, this means that he probably hasn't changed. I just hope we never have to see his name in the papers again because he committed another assault. My thoughts go out to the nine women who were unfortunate enough to encounter the Haga man. Louise, 14. Pia, 28. Karin, 50. Erika, 23. Kia, 18. Sara, 22. Mia, 22. Elin, 15. And Christina, 51. I hope you all are okay today and that you're able to enjoy life. And to his ex-wife and children, I just want to say, I hope you are able to live a happy life and that you are not being judged by people around you. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for listening to episode 20 of True Crime Sweden. We are going to get into the fun facts in just a minute. I just want to mention that you are welcome to join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook if you want to discuss the cases with others. Or if you just want to hang around with a great bunch of people. You can find it by searching for True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle True Crime Sweden. 
and you can email me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com. Enough of that, and let's head over to the fun fact about Sweden. After part one of the Hagaman story, I told you about surströmming and Swedish kaviar. I hope you took the time to check out some of the clips on YouTube. They are truly hilarious. Today, I'm going to stay away from the disgusting food. But I can't promise that you will like everything I talk about anyway. Some of the things are really Swedish. First, I have to talk about the thing that most people outside Sweden think we eat every day. The famous Swedish meatballs. And yes, we eat a lot of meatballs in Sweden. If you ask a kid under 10, it's probably their favorite food. Nowadays, we eat meatballs a lot of times with pasta and ketchup. But the traditional way to eat them is with boiled potatoes, cream sauce, and lingonberry jam. And back in the days, everyone made their own meatballs. But now, we don't really have the time, so you can buy them ready in the grocery store. We also have an old traditional food called kroppkakor. If you translate that, it sounds disgusting. The translation is body cookies. They're made out of potatoes and flour, and you fill them with fried pork and boil them in water. You serve kroppkakor with lingonberry jam, and yes, we have lingonberry jam to almost all traditional courses. And it's also served with melted butter and cream. Kroppkakor is eaten all over Sweden, but up north it's called palt instead of kroppkakor, but it's the same thing. And from that name, palt, we have an expression that I love, and that expression is paltkoma. Palt, coma toast, if you translate it. You know that feeling when you had too much to eat and you just feel like you cannot move ever again. That's palt koma. We also have a weird thing in Sweden. If you are ever in Sweden on a Thursday and go into a lunch restaurant, you most surely will be able to order pea soup and pancakes. It's an old tradition to always eat pea soup and pancakes on Thursdays. It's said to be because back about 700 years ago, Fridays was a day to fast. So Thursday night you had to have something solid to get you through the Friday. And before I stop talking about all the weird food we have here in Sweden, I have to mention our pizza. We eat pizza in Sweden too, like almost all countries do. Every little village have their own pizza place, of course. But our pizza is made with a really thin crust. And you can get almost everything on it. A normal pizza place in Sweden have between 40 and 60 different topping suggestions. Everything from kebab meat, filet of beef, tuna, artichokes, pineapple, and in some places... You can even get a burger and fries on top of your pizza. But the weirdest thing to an American who orders one of these pizzas in Sweden is that it's served on a regular plate, which means it sticks out because the plate is too small for the pizza. And no pizza place in Sweden would ever dream of cutting your pizza unless you ask them to. And we also eat our pizza with a knife and fork. And with it, you're always served a pizza salad, which is grated cabbage in a vinaigrette. I still remember my first time out having pizza with friends in the US at Godfather's Pizza in Spencer, Iowa. Oh God, I love their taco pizza and their amazing breadsticks. Anyway... When we got our pizza, I turned around and looked all over for a knife and fork. And I even asked the waiter. But all my friends just laughed at me and said, Eat it with your hands. 
What do you need a knife and fork for? That was something that was totally new to me back then. Today, a lot of people, including myself, eat pizza with their hands. But I can assure you that it's really hard when the crust is so thin that you have to use both hands so that the topping doesn't fall off. Hmm, I think all this food talk made me hungry. Maybe I should order pizza tonight. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Goodbye! Hej då!